and we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 209, aka season 3, episode 29, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, along with MC. And since we give out call-in numbers for you to call, those numbers are 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. That's 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. So how you been doing this week, MC? Oh, I'm doing great. And I don't have a lot for you this week. I'm uh, uh, spending time with with family and uh, shopping a lot and, and, and touring Oahu and... Yeah, so that's pretty much it, man. Nice. Family family works. Um, I know we, when we ended the show last week, there were some things you still wanted to touch on. Did you still want to get to that here? I, if I could get back into that mindset, I, I totally would. Um, if, if you uh, have any questions about uh, experience, I'd be happy to talk about it. But other than that, I guess we're open to any discussion. All right. Well... You you've got the family in town. Uh, M is out of town for the for the weekend, so I I haven't been doing much um, here. Just been kind of video gaming it up as you know part of that retro scene. And I guess I don't know if we touched on it the last time because I don't remember exactly when it happened um, or if I shared it. Did I share this here um, about uh, piracy in the in the retro community at all? Yes, I think we would share it. Okay. All right. That's all I had then, because that was the only thing that's, you know, been on my mind, um, you know, as, a, as I'm going through this, because it's nice to have a full collection of games, even if I'm not going to play them all. Um, and, you know, they, they're always like, you know, make sure you have a copy of the game. Like the, the tools that we're providing you, right, are there as quote unquote tools, but not for piracy purposes. So I, I have a I have a Harmony cart for the Atari 2600 and an Atari Max cart um, for the the 5200, right? And th- the whole idea is you you load all the ROMs that you have on an SD card, and then you just play whatever game you want off the menu. And as fun as that sounds, and as easy as that sounds, it's weird that it comes with a caveat of don't play ROMs for games you don't own, right? Isn't that <laughs> bizarre? Of course. Yeah. The whole idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, and I it's weird because I, I don't know if it's just a CYA type of thing or if they're serious because, you know, they don't want their specific things, you know, pirated within the community as well. Like I, we talked about the, the Dreamcast thing, I guess, as well then because I finally installed that and got that up and running and that works beautifully. Uh, but, you know, it's like, okay, so the retro guy who designed this thing, you know, doesn't want you to pirate games wink wink nudge nudge uh, but then gets ripped off by chinese copycats for the for the chip system and mm-hmm. it's partially his own damn fault because he he you know as a one man operation right he he rarely sells his things rarely takes pre orders you could be waiting months for him to like you know start manufacturing anything again um, meanwhile they're pumping him out of like china like crazy so why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you just get the chinese board uh, and having one of the Chinese boards loaded up and played a little bit of Crazy Taxi earlier today, I could say, well, spot on, bro. Works just fine with me. Um, and I don't, you know, his loss for, you know, not being more secure with his intellectual property, I guess, or his loss for not serving the demand of the customers. 
um, because if, if you know if the Chinese are manufacturing and selling that many, he could have been too with his certificate of authenticity attached to it. Uh, but if it's going to be so rare and few and far in between, I don't know what to say. Like, you know, go, yay piracy, I guess is what I'm trying to say because, you know, real anarchists don't believe in IP. And the other thing I realized too, again, not so much show related, but as much as I like the Dreamcast games, I really hate that controller. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know who designed it or why they designed it that way, but it's just it's weird to hold and my wrists flare the wrong way so I can't hold it comfortably for very long. Um, luckily, you know, the the community uh, it's it's on Kickstarter, but in like September we'll be launching like a retro controller uh, for the Dreamcast. And I'll probably pick one of those up at the time because it looks more ergonomic and comfortable for those for those gaming sessions. But again, like, you know, unofficially unlicensed products being sold to the marketplace. And yet, it, you know, it seems to be doing pretty well with, without interference, um, without oversight from the state. Um, and it's just a, a fun little hobby. That's all I got. Right on. Um, I, I have been talking to people, uh, about cryptocurrencies and it's usually one of the topics that comes up when they talk oh, about me. Snap. And so, you know, it's just it usually what I end up talking about is the, is the difference between, uh, about, well, about what Bitcoin's goal is. And so there's some people that think that, uh, Bitcoin isn't a success unless it, becomes the stand de facto standard of uh, exchanges uh, you know across the lands you know so uh, basically replacing fiat currency and sure and i don't think that's the truth at all i think i think bitcoin is an unstoppable currency but that doesn't mean that's the currency that everybody is going to choose to use sure um and so i use that idea to highlight need for another cryptocurrency that that solves the liquidity problems that that bitcoin has um so bitcoin is eventually going to become kind of like gold where uh people that have wealth and want to store wealth will, will store either gold or bitcoin and uh you know people that are just living paycheck to paycheck are not really going to care about it um so and i, and I still think bitcoin has a long way to go uh, you know, to catch up to gold, um, it, at least until it hits, what did I say? If, um, 300,000. 340, yeah, $340,000 per, per Bitcoin. Um, you know, then, then we're, we're probably running out of steam at that point. Um, but maybe not, maybe, maybe it'll just keep going and it'll hit a million and maybe push to a million, million and, and come back down. Back. Yeah. Right. So we, you know, we don't really know where it's going to be, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's going to get there. I think it's going to get to 40,000 at least. Um, but that doesn't really solve the problem of uh, people still using fiat. So, um, yeah, so that's that's why I say there needs to be uh, more liquidity, more uh, uh, alternatives. And, and uh, yeah, I'm working on that, sort of. So I guess I so... No, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna. I was just gonna bring up um, a, a coin that I always turned on to. That I don't know if I mentioned it to you or if it just slipped my mind because it's been so long. Uh, Intercoin. Have you heard of that? Nope. 
Okay, that is something that you may want to look into personally because as it was described to me, uh, it's another coin uh, out there looking to solve a similar issue that you're looking to solve. Um, and that is how to use cryptocurrencies for uh, UBI, universal basic income, in some form or fashion. Cool. So, that, you know, if, if you're still working on your project and you're looking for someone who, you know, maybe kind of have a meeting of the minds with, um, that might be out there for you and anybody else who, for whatever reason, and we don't have to discuss this uh, and rehash this again, but still thinks, still, still thinks that UBI is a good idea. Um, you know, Yang 2020, I guess, is, is the way to go. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't believe UBI forced by government and taxes is, is a good idea. So sure. um, I, I, I want to basically steal the idea and, and use it to solve the, uh, financial uh, bubble problems um, and fi well, monopoly problems that the government has. So, um, yeah. So... I, I don't know if I've shared this uh, too openly on this show, uh, but we are a member of the LRN.FM network, and I have, have recently begun uh, co-hosting the flagship show of that network, Free Talk Live, uh, Sunday nights. So if you're listening to this before Sunday, uh, tune in Sundays. If you're listening to this on a Sunday, uh, listen to me later uh, when that show airs. The reason I bring that up is because on multiple occasions, as I'm sitting in that studio, People have called in about the UBI issue, which is where I first heard of Intercoin. Uh, but most recently, I think it was last week's show, uh, a caller called in um, saying that the from the state of Georgia, suggesting that another way to operate UBI voluntarily uh, would be to have the payments paid out as a percentage of lottery income. Am I, am I explaining that right? Like people would, people would uh, enter the lottery uh, in Georgia voluntarily, right? Because you're not forced to buy a lottery mm -hmm. ticket. Uh, whatever the winning percentage is is set aside, and mm -hmm. the balance of the the income brought in would then be distributed to all Georgian citizens. So as okay. and and the only reason to do that um, through the state is because the state prohib prohibits uh, private lotteries. So. I, right. I will grant that concession there as far as feasibility, um, but sure. it seems to be another voluntary way to fund UBI. So, what are your what are your thoughts on? Well, sort that of. Method? I mean, of course, anarchists would say, "Well, you know, why why does the state get to run lotteries and nobody else does?" Right. Um, but I brought that up. So, yeah, I mean, go for it. Like, it doesn't really matter to me, and it's not going to solve anything because. It's not nearly enough money to make a difference, and and not that we, not that I would want UBI to make a difference, but um, it, yeah, to me, I don't understand it. It doesn't it doesn't solve anything, you know. It's be, besides let's let's put it this way, there could be uh, people that have too much money, don't know what to do with it, or they're just bad with their money. So why not give it to everybody else? Like, fine, but <laughs> you know. Incentivizing people to uh, hand the money to uh, you know uh, a collective, um, right? Uh, but that's yeah, so that's what, not what the know? lottery position is proposing to do. It's saying like you know you you enter the lottery because you think you're going to win big, um, but even if you don't win big, you still you know as a member of the uh, community, I guess under the under the state purview, you'll still get some of that money back 
in the form of a UBI payment. But so will those who don't participate in the lottery at all. Yeah, I mean, so what, what's the issue? What's the issue for you that that doesn't solve as far as UBI payment? Just the the value, the amount that it would collect. Yeah, I think because the way it is currently, that money is supposed to go to you know schools and you know government projects or whatever, and sure. and 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 it's still it's even though it's just going to a few small things, it's still not enough money. Those things uh, worthwhile and. And so I think if you just took that pile of money and split it up between everybody uh, equally, um, it it would be not enough to make a difference in anybody's life. Okay. Um, and you still have this this the system that incentivizes people to to uh, gamble. It's basically uh, uh, risky uh, in, investment type mentality sure. where um, your uh, pe- people are encouraged to be uh, foolish with their money uh, by the government uh, lottery system. So, Well, but they're um, going to be foolish anyway because the lottery, aside from Hawaii, the, the lottery exists everywhere. <laughs> sure. And, sure. The, you know, it, it's apparently big business. Yeah, and, and I, but I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really agree with it the way, okay. the way it is, you know. If it, was, if it was totally open to anybody to run a lottery, then maybe there would be much more interesting lottery uh, options available that uh, I agree. maybe even ones even ones with like better chances of winning or uh or or better chances of at least not losing right so like you 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 pay in a dollar but you have a a 99 percent chance of getting 99 cents back right so it's yeah. like you know they could have those type of things um you know they have casinos that you're that the odds are like really close to 50 percent um, that was the weird thing that I learned as well. Like casinos can't run lotteries, apparently, right? Which is bizarre because why not? It's just it's another form of gambling. Mm-hmm. Like how is how is a casino run lottery any different than a state run lottery? Aside from the fact that you know the state controls the state one. Like, what well, the, the state also controls the the winning percentages that casinos can offer. I said like they, a lot of times it's closer to fifty percent than. Than a lottery, which is like pretty much zero chance you're going to win, right? <laughs> okay. Oh, so you're saying it would be unfeasible for a, a casino to do it because the, the winning odds aren't big enough, right? To the state. The, the, right. the state can. I think the state controls what the what the odds what the the the, the minimum odds of winning are for okay. for the whatever games they are. Well, she, uh, so they have to have, have a certain payouts every week. Right. Come on, big money. Um, and and that's. And to me, it reminds me of the the lot machines. I mean, if you, you know, they they'll have like like a car or a million dollar prize. You could look at that the same way as a lottery, but um, but you but you're still your chances of of winning your money back on on each and every pull um, of the slot machine, it's is still you know relatively high compared to uh, a lottery, sure, state lottery. Right. But anyway, anyway, the state got involved fucked up the you know everything like as always uh, the casinos uh lotteries and everything else so um it's, it's like it's not the worst idea in the world i just i don't, don't think it it like having it or not having it creates or doesn't create enough value to even to worry about sure so i think it's to me it's like kind of like a non-issue i t- i tend well, to agree with you i was just throwing it out there because it was another it was another ubi thing i know i know mm-hmm. we we you know 
I know we always go to crypto when it comes to UBI because right now crypto is the easiest way to do financial transactions uh, completely mm-hmm. voluntarily. Um, yeah. But I just thought, you know, which, it, but it frustrates me because we'll keep saying UBI, but they're glossing over the fact that they'll have to completely take over the reserve and X system, uh, you know, the way government does things. And it's like, it's, it's not, it's not as easy as like, oh, well, this is what we want. We're just going to give money. Right. Yeah. Well, if, if you make up your own currency, you can do that. You can do that right, right now. Uh, will it, will anybody use your currency? Well, that's a whole other story. And, and you'd have to find out a way to, you know, create value. Uh, well, that's why that they want to use the that's... most commonly used currency, right? The dollar. And I think, yeah, well, I... Every, everybody does. I mean, that's, that's the whole the yeah. tax system. Everybody wants to use everybody else's money. Absolutely. <laughs> so... <laughs> and I think that's, that's why, I think that's the big reason why UBI takes off because nobody thinks that they're going to be the ones footing the bill. Well, I mean, that's the whole idea of socialism and everything else too. It's like, you know, government's good as long as I'm, I, I believe I'm living off of everybody else's money. And that's, and it's not true. Eventually, um, you feed the lion and the, and the lion eats you last, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe somewhere in the middle, but, um, depends where you are. If you're, if, you know, if you're below the poverty line already on welfare, right? Mm-hmm. UBI gets a vote for the politician, but it doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily make you any better or worse off. Right. Uh, you know, if you're middle class, not on any of that, and you think, well, all the rich people are going to end up funding it. Um, well, when the rich people disappear, guess what? You're the new rich, you know? Right, right. And then, you know, and, the, and a lot more people are falling it falling into that, that area. And, and that's kind of how the, the tax system works. So, you know, they, they say, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, if you make over sixty thousand dollars a year, then you you know you got to pay this much taxes. And I thought, wow, I'll never I'll never make sixty thousand dollars a year. But now, you know, thirty years later, okay, well, sixty thousand dollars isn't that much anymore. It's below the poverty line in Hawaii, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like ninety four thousand dollars for low income now, in which Hawaii. is ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's totally insane. But um, uh, well, the, the one the one caveat is they they they, they base that on uh on on uh, family household income and so usually there's two people in a household uh, making money sure uh, so you, they'd have to put those you know two numbers together so you know two people making fifty thousand dollars a piece would would just be above low low income yeah and there there are some that would claim that that destroys the family dynamic where you know there was a, a single sure. income household uh, and was able to you know provide for uh, the wife and the kids um, so that she could maintain the household. And some people see that women in the workplace is part of what destroys the culture. Uh, and I can, I can see the argument. I don't entirely agree with it. Um, but I can see why when you look at historically, you know, what it what, what how much money it took to run a household and mm-hmm. it was doable by one person, regardless of the, if the second person is female or not, yeah. right. The fact that two is now necessary and then some, um, yeah. Just to be considered, you know, just getting by the poverty line um, is cause for alarm so, regardless. So my, my thing right now it, it isn't even about, you know, whether uh, a, both parties in a, in a couple should should be working uh, or not. My thing is the amount of hours they work. So if, if the amount of hours 
uh, worked per per week was down to 25, then one could person can work while the other one is staying at home, and you could still have that family dynamic. Sure. Maybe not both at the same time all the time, but but there'd be more time for that. And another thing I was talking to my sister about this was the the amount of time at work that you can really put in 100% effort is probably about, you know, five straight hours. I mean, uh, I mean, you, you know, different people have different capabilities, obviously, but, um, you know, 100% uh, you know, dedication to your task or whatever it is, uh, you know, really, really putting all your effort into it for, for five hours straight, you know, like basically uh, minimal breaks, um, you know, not not having a lunch break or anything else. You eat before you go to work. You work five hours, and you know if you're hungry, you eat yeah. after that, right? You would um, not like my Fridays. Certain certain not Fridays. Like what? You would not like my Fridays. Like yes, yesterday, uh, because of the amount of income streams I currently have that I, I think I'm able to manage because they're not all full time streams. Uh, right. But yes, but yesterday. For so example, the the other right. advantage of having five hour five hour days is that you can have multiple jobs. Yes. And so instead of working five, you know, 10 straight hours at one task, you split them up and then you, it becomes more manageable. It is definitely more manageable constantly. that way. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I can attest to that. It's one of the reasons why I do it and split it up so, so much because I never feel overwhelmed or overworked at one particular thing. I mm -hmm. might, I, you know, I, uh, I told M like, I'm a, I think I'm a reluctant workaholic. Like right. I really hate going to work until I get to work. Once mm -hmm. I'm there, I'm like, man, this is this isn't so bad, and you know, I enjoy myself. <laughs> Maybe a little I, too much. You, yeah, you can you can make up your own little challenges and stuff. But once once it gets over five hours, it's just it's like yeah. you, you begin to look for ways out of it, right? Absolutely. And and you're, you're you know, I, I say you, but I'll, I'll I'll change it to I. What I would do uh, is try to find escapes while I'm at work and so whether that's you know surfing the internet or you know goofing off like i mean there's been studies about you know large corporations and how much t time people waste while they're at work doing things that they're not supposed to and it's and it's really it's really crazy and that's and that's why i think changing uh i really despise the 40-hour work week i think it's just uh it it needs to change and people need to rethink it. And if, if I had a corporation, maybe, you know, like I said, if I get my bank running, um, I, I will put a limit on, on that. I'll, I'll say, you know, 25 hour work days, uh, work weeks, five hours a day. Um, and then, and then see what happens, you know? Okay. Now, but back in, back when I was working, uh, less lower income jobs, I was working at the, the gas station, which I think we've is well known on the show. Um, there was one point in time where I didn't have a second job, right? And I, I, but I wasn't making enough money at that, at that one to, you know, to kind of make ends meet. And I told the owner at the time, um, you know, let's keep, let's keep this between you and me. Um, but how about you give me overtime and just pay me straight? Like, cause I know, cause I know he wouldn't want to pay me overtime pay because you could just get another right. employee to do that. But I said, let me work the overtime and pay me straight. Otherwise I got to go look for another, you know, part-time job. And if I find another part-time job, well, then I'm, I'm making the same amount of money, but now I'm splitting it across, you know, two different places that I have to, you know, commute to and whatnot, mm -hmm. or right. just let me work the overtime, pay me straight pay. And it's the same income for me and you don't have to go hire anybody else. Um, and he agreed. So what would you say to a situation like that, where the employee wants to work more than, uh, the 25 hours you think is? Sure. Uh, I, I think it, 
works uh, you know, person to person. Um, I was thinking more of a like for like more of a like a salaried position than a okay than a, a hourly uh, based pay. Okay, so no matter um, what, you get the you work twenty five hours, you get paid whether you put in twenty five or forty. So you're right, right. To, okay, In, incentivized to only work twenty five, but to put in maximum effort in that twenty five. Like, like if like seriously, if it takes you forty hours to do twenty five hours worth of work, that's that's not my problem, you know. <laughs> yeah, but if you can get it done in twenty five hours, that's fine too, you know. See, and again, I'll just compare it to my current job because, like I said, on my my some of my Fridays look like this. Um, I go to one job for eight straight hours. And I don't, I don't clock out for a lunch break, but I'm allowed to eat on the job because it's not mm-hmm. physically demanding. Um, right. And then I go to the restaurant for another five, five and a half hours. To, you know, I think it's closer to five and a half hours on Friday just because uh, dinner shift runs long. Uh, and then after that, then I go to like my cleaning job, which can be another hour and a half to two hours, um, depending on, you know, how, how messy those fools leave the place. Um, but the, the, the eight hour job, it's not so much like physically demanding where I'm doing eight hours worth of work. Um, there's like a handful of tasks that I had to get done throughout the day, but a lot of it is um, customer service, right? It's like I have to wait for uh, a potential customer to come in or a, a current customer to, to come in and, you know, take care of their business before I like, I jump into operations. So, but that, you know, but so it's not like I could do 25 hours worth of work in 25 hours. I, you know, the, the job as it stands now requires me to be there for about 40 hours a week just to handle mm-hmm. the, the, the business operating hours. Mm-hmm. And then the restaurant, uh, my God, that is like five straight hours of, you know, of work. Like if, right. if you get five minutes of breathing time on a, on a busy Friday night, <laughs> <laughs> that's about as good as it gets. Yep. I hear you. Uh, until it's like until it's like the dinner's almost over and then we can all you know then we all take like five to ten minutes to eat you know so we we get a meal on the clock um but even even that last night man it was so busy last night that's like man the meal is a trade-off because i know if i take 10 minutes to eat this food it's going to be 10 minutes longer that i'm going to be here you know because i it was already you know clean up time and i was putting everything away and it's like damn it but i'm hungry so let's eat you know and then you know go to the bank and again, I don't even look at my watch. I just, you know, I know the work that I have to get done and then I do it. And for the, for the bank cleaning job, um, that one is kind of like a salary, uh, regardless of how long it takes. Like I get paid two hours a night, no matter how long it takes to clean the bank. So sometimes mm-hmm. it takes an hour and a half. And sometimes, you know, if it's like on a Monday, it, it takes me less than an hour to clean up on Mondays because over the weekend on Mondays, they're just not as busy as they are during the rest of the week. So there's not as much trash to take out. There's, you know, not as much uh, uh, carpets to vacuum, I guess. You know, not as much windows to wipe down because it's all pretty pretty well taken care of after, you know, the, the thorough job that I do Friday nights. But it's just, you know, it's one of those things where I split up. I, I, I overload my hours heavily toward the end of the week. Um, and the beginning of the week, I just, you know, I'm home on time, I guess is the easiest way to, to put it. But I do work. I do work a lot of hours, um, and uh, you know, like I said, I'm kind of a, a reluctant workaholic insofar as um, I don't really need to work that much. I mean, I you know, I, we have financial goals, so I'm trying to uh, put a little bit aside for that. Um, but as far as you know, the the getting by and bills being paid, um, 
we're, we're we're not like in a desperate position there so i could i could cut back cut back to you know one job maybe one and a half um, and still be fine but i go well you know after doing this for a few weeks i can handle the extra workload and that's a lot of money for the you know for a, a small amount of hours that i i, I the that i legitimately put in um so yeah i'll i'll work extra and you know make some extra money and get that income coming in and, mm-hmm. and again no 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 need for handouts from the state. No need for any of that. Uh, although it's weird. So the restaurant job, um, I, you know, I, I think I told you this. Um, I don't sign um, state documents the same way that I sign voluntary documents. Right. And my, my boss came to me last night. He's like, I have to ask you a favor. Not too serious, but kind of serious. He's like, can you please e-sign the, the state documents? I was like, okay, why? You know, he's like, because the the restaurant is getting audited by the Department of Labor locally um, for some e-verify compliance. And it's not just me. There's like a Brazilian dude who who's like work permit or whatever is so old that the the e-verify system won't accept his document man- yeah. like entered in manually. So now the boss has to go like beg him to go down to the state office and get a state ID so that we'll see how well that goes. Um, but my, the, the concession I made is I said, well, make me make me a copy of the way I signed it for my records in case, you know, they bring it to me and say, did you sign this? I'll say, no, I signed this one, um, you know, and have my copy and then keep that keep the, the manual signature on file. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I will I will concede as long as there's a record of how I physically signed it. Um, as opposed to my e-verified signature, quote unquote <laughs> signature, um, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and take care of that for him. So that's that's on my to-do list, along with you know, video game playing and all that. Um, I just thought it, you know, it, it it's funny where you know, again, it's it has nothing to do with uh, my skills, my ability, my work ethic. There, it's complete, you know, state compliance. Uh, not just with me as the individual, but with them at the restaurant, um, highlighting the very reason why I sign it the way I do. <laughs> <'Cause>, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to go through this. Nobody wants to go through this. And yet the state forces itself into the relationships of every individual uh, and every relationship that you have uh, in some form or fashion uh, and, and makes you do things that you would not voluntarily do on your own. Right. He doesn't want to go through that. He doesn't want to beg the dishwasher to go down and get a state ID. He doesn't want to ask (laughs) me to like, you know, digitally sign documents that I've already signed, um, you know, physically and manually. Mm -hmm. But yet who who's deciding that that must be done? Uh, Apparently the the state Department of uh, Labor, whoever they are. Mm -hmm. So what what a nonsense uh, bull hockey mess that is. Shall we do headlines? Let's do it. All right. I moved this one to the front because we started talking about crypto. And I think this was going to be an interesting one. Uh, Headline. Local Bitcoins ends anonymity following new EU regulations. Uh, Headline. Virginia may reinstate licenses for drivers with unpaid court fees. That's another one that I follow closely because if I were in Virginia, um, this would be beneficial. And the ACLU in Hawaii uh, never got back to me when I tried to, you know, be their test case. For this locally there uh, headline mom ignores doctor when her sick two-year-old starts feeling better child services sends SWAT team uh, headline libertarians for forced vaccinations 
And finally, headline, the state of nature is a state of poverty. Uh, any place you want to start, MC? Otherwise, I'm going with the local Bitcoins. Yeah, start with that. All right. Local Bitcoins ends anonymity following new EU regulations. Uh, local Bitcoins is one of the oldest online marketplaces to buy and sell Bitcoin. Now, the once anonymous exchange is finally enacting a proper verification process. Uh, anonymous Bitcoin buying and selling is no more. Local Bitcoins, one of the last places to offer such a service, is officially changing its policy after receiving pressure from the European Union. The exchange announced yesterday, uh, this is a couple days old at this point, uh, March 25th. The exchange announced March 25th the implementation of the new Know Your Customer measures to satisfy the European Union's fifth anti-money laundering directive. Uh, the directive came into effect on March 18th. Although it is not stated how detailed the verification process will be, local Bitcoins will nonetheless be forced to sacrifice some anonymity. Uh, an anonymous no more. The new policy is somewhat of a letdown for longtime users of local Bitcoins. Uh, local Bitcoins has amassed for itself a legendary reputation for some in the cryptocurrency space. The website has been around seemingly since the beginning connecting buyers with sellers and helping them meet up in person to exchange bitcoins. Uh, the process was for some very personal and allowed for people to meet face-to-face -to, -face to trade cryptocurrencies. However, this also inevitably meant that exchange was a target for money laundering. Local bitcoins was ultimately the only way to meet others to buy and sell bitcoin in cash. In fact, trading in person opened up too many uncertainties for regulators. They saw the whole process as a liability. Uh, what's the rush? Local Bitcoins could have waited until January 2020 to implement the changes since the directive does not kick in fully until then. However, Finland has already accelerated this legisl legislation, which is where local Bitcoins is based. The over-the-counter exchange, in effect, wanted to comply as soon as it could to avoid any issues down the road. The new EU law has few stipulations, which will be felt across the cryptocurrency sphere. For example, uh, know your customer is more routinely enforced and financial investors can, by mandate, obtain addresses and identities of cryptocurrency owners. Cryptocurrency exchanges and wallets providers must also be registered with the relevant financial regulators of their home countries. Local Bitcoins is trying to stay ahead of the curve on regulatory compliance, but to many longtime users of the site, it may come off as a disappointment. Uh, end of the article. We, you, we, I, we've used local bitcoins in the past, MC. Um, and one of the reasons why, uh, well, the secondary reason why I stopped selling on local bitcoins is because they required uh, seller verification to post ads. And as soon as they did that, um, I stopped. So what are your thoughts on the privacy and anonymity aspect of, of cryptocurrencies buying and selling going forward? Uh, well, I'll, first, I wanted to say I think the EU ruins everything, <laughs> um, and that's probably why I'm a, a big fan of Brexit. Um, even Which they're though, backing oh, out of anyway. Well, yeah, so sad, but <laughs> I I really thought that uh, e even if it it harmful to Britain's uh, economy, that it still would be worth it for their. Uh, for their culture and and uh, and in the long run, uh, they're going to be too culture. because yeah, I mean, 
the idea of the EU is is that a central authority is uh, is, is good at making decisions for uh, many different countries that speak many different languages and uh, yeah, it's just uh, it, it's absurd to me. Um, it's amazing so, how many people don't see that as a failure already. Yeah. Um, th so th th on the flip side of that, what they've gained out of the EU is basically open borders within the EU. Um, what I don't understand is why can't they have a Brexit still have open borders for trading and, and whatever else? Sure. And so the theory is, well, if you're not in the EU anymore, uh, you can no longer trade with us. And that's just the stupidest thing ever. So um, they've created that's a vindictive. problem. Yeah. They've created a, created a problem and said the solution is the EU. Um, and it's not a solution. It's it's more of the same. It's, it's more control. Uh, you have to give up. Uh, certain rights that tell you that you'll have trading rights within the EU, and it's and it's uh, it's stupid. It's it's wrong. And does that mean and, the EU doesn't import anything from China because China is not a member of the EU? Um, well, I, that's what I said. I don't know all the specifics on it, but yeah, a lot a lot of things are uh, taxed and restricted, and uh, you know you have to comply with the EU's rules on sure. on everything that you sell there. So, um, so yeah, it would be. It would be difficult for uh, Britain to to uh, compete uh, in, in the European market if if they do if they follow through with the Brexit. But uh, but that would if they do the Brexit, then they'll be more open to the rest of the world, right? Because they don't have to comply with the EU's regulations. So I mean, it's a tough decision, but, but uh, I think morally and ethically and responsibly uh, and all that other stuff uh that it's it's the right thing to do um because uh yeah because they're, they're they're doing things like this like with the localbitcoins.com um saying that you know you, you have to require or you're, you're required to uh, apply with their demands and uh but i don't know if if it wasn't the eu requiring it then i think the united states would eventually anyway so uh that's just that's just the direction it goes. So, yeah, and I don't know what caused them to require the the seller verification either. Like right at the right at the tail end of you know the the endeavor, um, you know, I was talking to my uh, other friends trying to line up you know uh, exchange investors, I guess, to to continue operations on local Bitcoin, um, and then you know I they I logged in to you know check the ads to you know and they said I oh, we need your ID. And I went, all right, not doing that anymore. And I, you know, called my buddy up and said like, Hey dude, that the, you know, the plan that we were working on and you know, the brother-in-law that you were talking to about this, like cancel because they, they want my ID. And part of the, part of the reason I'm on local bitcoins is because I didn't have to provide it. Right. You, you got the, the pseudonym, the username, you know, uh, the meeting places, wherever, you know, wherever I could make it to a lot of times it happened to be by house. Cause again, I wasn't I wasn't hiding, you know, so to speak, from the authorities. Um, they just never came looking. Um, but it just, again, overall, just as soon as, I wonder how many other uh, people they lost. Because at the time, right, there there wasn't there wasn't another seller on there uh, doing that kind of volume locally. Yeah. 
Right. And I wonder how it's going to affect people in places like Venezuela, for example. Um, I guess, I mean, I guess they still all have IDs and stuff like that, kind of required to to get their welfare benefits and all that. So, but I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure it's affecting some people in in areas that um, it's it's like local bitcoins might be the only way to do business. Yeah. And then what? Yeah. And and who you know. And you're saying the EU, I'm just, yeah, sure. Um, but look how look how much damage is being done by the simple regulation, and the EU. Like this again, kind of off topic, but coming down on like memes that use uh, copyrighted material, like remo- <laughs> removing the fair use uh, out of <laughs> out of satire and comedy because they don't like being insulted. Um, right. It's just more nonsense coming out of the EU, and the more exits, Brexits. Uh, the the better, and again, amazing that other that representatives of other countries don't see, um, I guess that writing on the wall, right? Like they still somehow think that being a part of the European Union uh, is beneficial, um, missing out on all the opportunity costs and op- opportunity benefits um, that they could be experiencing um, coming out. Now, I asked earlier, you know, yeah. does China not trade with the EU? Um, and yes, I don't know for certain, but it, it's it's a hard push for me to to think that um, you know Chinese and Asian marketplaces aren't getting their goods uh, somehow into the European Union. And if they're no, I think they are. I think they're just heavily taxed, just like any other import. They have yeah. to pay, pay the duty fees and stuff. It's a it's a little bit different than the in the U.S. where uh, you can get things for from China for you know cheap much cheaper than you can get made made here sure but i just if if those goods are getting in i'm i guess my point is that british goods would also find a way in right it, they may be they may be uh, less competitive priced because right, of eu right. you know tariffs but but again that goes both ways across the board like i'm not for tariffs um or taxes or any, anything like that um but the the whole like trump trade battle is based heavily around that idea well, if you tariff us, then we're going to tariff you. And if, you, you know, so, and you mm-hmm. know, you, if China puts a tariff on U.S. imports, then U.S. puts a tariff on Chinese imports, and then it's a wash. So if, if, uh, if, you know, if well, there's, there's a European not, Union not tariff exactly. on British goods. What ends up happening is, is people in, in China that, that have a, a, an abundance of talent and resources making a certain thing, uh, those, those more easily made goods are are not going to be made, you know, imported into the U.S. and and so there's going to be people that uh, in in the U.S. making those same goods at a greater cost, and so it it'll, it'll just be more more expense for the the people buying the products. Sure. And that's what that's what it does. It makes it's it's the opposite of uh, uh, e- economical <laughs> economy. <laughs> so we, <laughs> It's a wonderful word, economy, right? It means doing things <laughs> sure. the most the most efficient way. Uh, you put a tariff on, now it's uh, much less efficient, and that's that's the opposite way of having a good economy. Yeah, and, and I I was when I said a wash, I didn't necessarily mean that financially across the board. I just meant back and sure. forth. So right, if, right. you know, if if Europe if Europe if the European Union puts a tariff on British imports, right? That's just, it's just going to start a trade battle of Britain's mm-hmm. putting tariffs on uh, European Union imports, 
right? Making both sides worse off. Got it. Um, but also, you know, if you if you're like Trumpian in that, you could say like, well, it'll bolster British businesses locally, right? Because all of a sudden, uh, European imports that might have been um, financially viable to bring in now aren't, right? And so, what do you do? Well, you end up buying you know locally made British goods more expensively, again making everybody worse off. But it's still you know on the international scale, it's still a tool that gets used. So if, if those companies that yeah. were previously selling to Britain, right, you know, don't want to be right. tariffed out of business, then they should be petitioning the I European think, Union to not do that as well. I think there's still something a little bit bigger going on, and that's the idea that it's, it's always good to uh, hand off responsibility to the next higher level. And, and so that happened in, in U.S. politics. I think it happens in Europe and everywhere else, too. Um, and I don't know if the people in the EU are getting, you know, paid off somehow, or or what benefits they might get from kickbacks, uh, giving giving more power to the next higher level of government. But it, it seems that that people are are more likely to to do that than take responsibility and say, no, this is this is uh, you know the job for the city or the job for the state. Uh, it's always well, you know. That, you know they're they're a higher level of government than me, so it should be their job, and I think that's the wrong approach to take. I think things should be decentralized and uh, as much as possible down to the individual level. Yes, all the way down. All right. Anything else on privacy, anonymity, Bitcoin? No. All right. All right. Let's do this one because I I think this was the first one I went up. Oh man, do I want to do this? All right. Fuck it. Let's do it. It's long, but it's it's one of those things that, holy shit, why do we have to keep repeating this? Uh, long form. The state of nature is a state of poverty. From time immemorial, men have prattled about the blissful conditions their ancestors enjoyed in the original state of nature. From old myths, fables, and poems, and the images of this primitive happiness passed into many popular philosophies of the 17th and 18th century. In their language, the term natural denoted what was good and beneficial in human affairs, while the term civilized had the connotation of opprobrium. The fall of man was seen in the deviation from the primitive conditions of ages in which there was but little difference between man and other animals. At that time, these romantic eulogists of the past asserted there were no conflicts between men. Peace was undisturbed in the Garden of Eden. Yet nature does not generate peace and goodwill. The characteristic mark of the state of nature is irreconcilable difference or conflict. Each specimen is the rival of all other specimens. The means of subsistence are scarce and do not grant survival to all. The conflict can never disappear. If a band of men united with the object of defeating rival bands succeed in annihilating its foes, New antagonisms arise among the victors over the distribution of the booty. The source of the conflict is always the fact that each man's portions curtails the portions of all other men. This is the dilemma that does not allow for any peaceful solution. What makes friendly relations between human beings possible is the higher productivity of the division of labor. It removes the natural conflict of interest. For where there is division of labor, there is no longer a question of the distribution of supply not capable of enlargement. 
Thanks to the higher productivity of labor performed under the division of tasks, the supply of goods multiplies. A preeminent common interest, the preservation and further intensification of social cooperation, becomes paramount and obliterates all essential collisions. Catalactic competition is substituted for biological competition. It makes for harmony of the interests of all members of society. The very condition from which the irreconcilable conflicts of biological competition arise vis-a-vis -vis the facts that all people, by and large, strive after the same thing, is transformed into a factor making for harmony of interest. Because many people, or even all people, want bread, clothes, shoes, cars, large-scale productions of these goods becomes feasible and reduces the cost of production to such an extent that they are accessible at low prices. The fact that my fellow man wants to acquire shoes as I do does not make it harder for me to get shoes. Oh, well, we'll see about that. Uh, unless they're Jordans on sale day. Uh, move on. But easier. What enhances the price of shoes is the fact that nature does not provide a more ample supply of leather and other raw materials required, and that one must submit to the disutility of labor in order to transform these raw materials into shoes. The catalactic competition of those who, like me, are eager to have shoe makers make shoes cheaper, not more expensive. This is the meaning of the theorem of the harmony of the rightly understood interest of all members of the market society. What the classical economists made this statement, they were trying to stress two points. Number one, that everybody is interested in the preservation of the social division of labor, the system that multiplies the productivity of human efforts. And two, that the market society's consumers demand ultimately directs all production activities. The fact that not all human wants can be satisfied is not due to inappropriate social institutions or to deficiencies of the system of the market economy. It is a natural condition of human life, the belief that nature bestows upon man inexhaustible riches and that misery is an outgrowth of man's failure to organize the good society is entirely fallacious. The state of nature that the reformers and utopians depicted as paradisiac was in fact a state of extreme poverty and distress. Poverty, says Bentham, is not the work of the laws. It is the primitive condition of the human race. Even those at the base of the social pyramid are much better off than they would have been in the absence of social cooperation. They too are benefited by the operation of the market economy and participate in its advantages of civilized society. The 19th century reformers did not drop the cherished fable of the original earthly paradise. Frederick Engels incorporated it into the Marxian account of mankind's social evolution. However, they no longer set up the bliss of the aura eights as a pattern for social and economic reconstruction. They contrast the alleged depravity of capitalism with the ideal happiness man will enjoy in the social elysium of the future. The socialist mode of production will abolish the fetters by means of which capitalism checks the development of the productive forces and will increase the productivity of labor and wealth beyond all measure. The preservation of free enterprise and the private ownership of the means of production benefits exclusively the small minority of parasitic parasitic exploiters and harms the immense majority of working men. Hence there prevails within the frame of the market society an irreconcilable conflict between the interest of capital and those of labor. This class struggle can disappear only when a fair system of social organization, either socialism or interventionism, is substituted for the manifestly unfair capitalist mode of production. 
Such is the most universally accepted social philosophy of our age. It was not created by Marx, although it owes its popularity mainly to the writings of Marx and the Marxians. It is today endorsed not only by the Marxians, but no less by most of the parties who emphatically declare their anti-Marxian and pay lip service to the free enterprise. It is the official social philosophy of Roman Catholicism as well as Anglo-Catholicism. It is supported by many champions of various Protestant denominations and the Orthodox Oriental Church. It is an essential part of the teachings of Italian fascism and of German Nazism and all the varieties of interventionist doctrines. It was the ideology of sociopolitik of the Hohenzollern in Germany and the French royalists aiming at the restoration of the House of the Bourbon Orleans, of the New Deal of President Roosevelt and of the nationalists of Asia and Latin America. The antagonism between these parties and factions refer to accidental issues, such as religious dogma, constitutional institutions, foreign policy, and first of all, of the characteristic features of the social, social system that is to be substituted for capitalism. But they all agree in the fundamental thesis that the very existence of the capital system harms the vital interest of the immense majority of workers, artisans, and small farmers, and they ask in the name of social justice for the abolition of capitalism. But the belief that nature bestows upon man inexhaustible riches and that misery is an outgrowth of man's failures to organize the goods society is entirely fallacious. All socialist and interventionist authors and politicians base their analysis and critique of the market economy on two fundamental errors. First, they fail to recognize that speculative character inherent in all endeavors to provide for future want satisfaction, i.e., all human action. They naively assume that there cannot exist in any doubt about the measures to be applied for the best possible provisioning of the consumers. In a socialist commonwealth, there would be no need for the, for the production czar or the central board of production management to speculate. He will simply have to resort to those measures which are beneficial to his wards. The advocates of a planned economy have never conceived that the task is to provide for future wants that may differ from today's wants and to employ the various available factors of production in the most expedient way for the best possible satisfaction of all these uncertain future wants. They have not conceived that the problem is to allocate scarce factors of production to the various branches of production in such a way that no wants considered more urgent should be remain unsatisfied because the factors of production required for their satisfaction were employed, i.e. wasted for the satisfaction of wants considered less urgent. This economic problem must not be confused with the technological problem. Uh, technological knowledge can merely tell us what could be achieved under the present state of our scientific insight. It does not answer the question as to what should be produced and in what quantities, and which of the multitude of technological processes available should be chosen. Deluded by their failure to grasp this essential matter, the advocates of a planned society believe that the production czar will never err in his decisions. In the market economy, the entrepreneurs and capitalists cannot avoid committing serious blunders because they know neither what the consumers want nor what their competitors are doing. The general manager of a socialist state will be infallible because he alone will have the powers to determine what should be produced and how, and because no actions of other people cross his plans. The second fundamental error involved in the socialist critique of the market economy stems from their faulty theory of wages. 
they have failed to realize is that wages are the price paid for the wage earner's achievements, i.e. for the contribution of his efforts to the processing of the goods concerned or, as people say, for the value his services add to the value of the materials. No matter whether there are time wages or piecework wages, the employer always buys the worker's performance and services, not his time. It is therefore not true that in the unhampered market economy that worker has no personal interest in the execution of his task. The socialists are badly mistaken in asserting those paid a certain rate per hour, per day, per week, per month, or per year are not impelled by their own selfish interest when they work efficiently. It is not lofty ideals and the sense of duty that deter a worker paid according to the length of time worked from carelessness and loafing around the shop, but the very substantial arguments. He who works more and better gets higher pay, and he who wants to earn more must increase the quantity and improve the quality of his performance. The hard-boiled employers are not so gullible as to let themselves be cheated by slothful employees. They are not so negligent as those governments who pay salaries to hosts of loafing bureaucrats. Neither are the wage earners so stupid as to not know that laziness and inefficiency are heavily penalized on the labor market. On the shaky ground of their misconception of the catalytic nature of wages, the socialist authors have advanced fantastic fables about the increase in the productivity of labor to be expected from the realization of their plans. Under capitalism, they say, the worker's zeal is seriously impaired because he is aware of the fact that he himself does not reap the fruits of his labor and that his toil and trouble enrich merely his employer, this parasitic and idle exploiter. But under socialism, every worker will know that he works for the benefit of society, of which he himself is a part. The knowledge will provide him with the most powerful incentive to do his best, an enormous increase in the productivity of labor, and thereby in wealth will result. However, this identification of interest of each worker and those of the socialist commonwealth is a purely legalistic and formalistic fiction that has nothing to do with the real state of affairs. While the sacrifices an individual worker makes in intensifying his own exertion burden him alone, only an infinitesimal fraction of the pro produce of his additional exertion benefit himself and improves his own well-being. While the individual worker enjoys completely the pleasures he may reap by yielding to the temptation of carelessness and laziness, the resulting impairment to the social dividend curtails his own share only infinitesimally. Under such a socialist mode of production, all personal incentives that selfishness provide under capitalism are removed, and a premium is put on laziness and negligence. Whereas in a capitalist society, selfishness incites everyone to the utmost diligence, in a socialist society it makes for inertia and laxity. The socialists may still babble about the miraculous change in human nature and the advent of socialism will effect, and about the substitution of lofty altruism for mean egoism. But they must no longer indulge in the fables that the marvelous effects of selfishness of each individual will bring about under socialism. The state of nature that the reformers and utopians depict as paradisiac was in fact a state of extreme poverty and distress. No judicious man can fail to conclude from the evidence that these considerations that in the market economy the productivity of labor is incomparably higher than it would be under socialism. However, the cognition does not settle the question between the advocates of capitalism and those of socialism from a praxeological, i.e. scientific, point of view. A bona fide advocate of socialism who is free from bigotry, prepossession, and malice could still contend, it may be true that P, the total net income turned out of the market society, is larger than little P, 
the total net income turn out in a socialist society. But if the socialist system assigned to each of its members an equal share of small p, all those incomes in the market society is smaller than d are favored by the substitution of socialism for capitalism. Uh, you got to look in the article for the, the formula there. It may happen that this group of people include the majority of men. At any rate, it becomes evident that the doctrine of the harmony between their rightly understood interests of all members of the market society is untenable. There is a class of men whose interests are hurt by the very existence of the market economy and who would be better off under socialism. The liberals contest that conclusiveness of this reasoning. They believe that little p will lag so much behind big p that d will be smaller than the income even those earning the lowest wages get in the market society. There can be no doubt that the objections raised by the liberals is well-founded. However, their refutation of the socialist claims is not based on praxeological considerations and therefore lacks the apodictic and incontestable argumentative power inherent in a praxeological demonstration. It is based on a judgment of relevance, the quantitative appraisal of the difference between the two magnitudes, the big P and little p. In the field of human action, such as quantitative cognitions is obtained by understanding, with regards to which full agreement between men cannot be reached. Praxeologic economics and catalytics are of no use for the settlement of such dissension concerning quantitative issues. The advocates of socialism could go further and say, granted, that each individual will be worse off under socialism than even the poorest under capitalism. Yet we spurn the market economy in spite of the fact that it supplies everybody with more goods than socialism. We disapprove of capitalism on ethical grounds as an unfair and amoral system. We prefer socialism on the grounds commonly called non-economic and put up with the fact that it impairs everybody's material well-being. It cannot be denied that this healthy indifference with regards to material well-being is a privilege reserved to ivory tower intellectuals secluded from reality and aesthetic anchor and anchorities. Uh, what makes socialism popular with the immense majority of its supporters was, on the contrary, the illusion that it would supply them with more amenities than capitalism. But however this may be, it's obvious that this type of pro-socialist argumentation cannot be touched by the liberal reason concerning the productivity of labor. Whereas in a capitalist society, selfishness incites everyone to the utmost diligence. In a socialist society, it, it makes for inertia and laxity. If no other objection could be raised to the socialist plans that socialism will lower the standard of living of all or at least the immense majority, it would be impossible for, praxeologic, for, for praxeology to pronounce a final judgment. Men would have to decide the issue between capitalism and socialism on the ground of judgments of value and of judgments of relevance. They would not have to choose between two systems as they choose between many other things. No objective standard could be discovered that would make it possible to settle the dispute in a manner that allows no contradiction and must be accepted by every sane individual. The freedom of each man's choice and discretion would not be annihilated by an inexorable necessity. However, the true state of affairs is very different. Man is not in a position to choose between these two systems. Human cooperation under the system of social division of labor is possible only in the market economy. Socialism is not a realizable system of society's economic organization because it lacks any method of economic calculation. The establishment of this truth does not amount to depreciation of the conclusiveness and the convincing powers of the anti-socialist argument derived from the impairment of productivity to be expected from socialism. The weight of this objection raised by the socialist, uh, this, uh, the weight of this objection raised to the socialist plans is so overwhelming that no ju no judicious man could hesitate to choose capitalism. 
Yet this would still be a choice between alternate, alternative systems of society's economic organization, preference given to one system as yet against another. However, such is not the alternative. Socialism cannot be realized because it is beyond human power to establish it as a social system. The choice between capitalism and chaos. A man who chooses between drinking a glass of milk and a glass of solution of potassium cyanide does not choose between two beverages. He chooses between life and death. A society that chooses between capitalism and socialism does not choose between two social systems. It chooses between social cooperation and the disintegration of society. Socialism is not an alternative to capitalism. It is an alternative to any system under which men can live as human beings. To stress this point, it is the task of economics, it is the task of biology and chemistry to teach that potassium cyanide is not a nutriment but a deadly poison. Uh, end of the article. Your thoughts, MC, uh, on the state of nature being a state of poverty, despite what socialists may claim. You lost me. <laughs> Just got back on a, from a hike, so. <laughs> and a lot of food, so. Uh, that'll do it for us this week. <laughs> Find us, anarchistexperience.com, minds.com, slash the anarchist experience. Um, and if you want to contribute to the show financially, uh, patreon.com, slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.